Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the 15th episode, I spoke with Amy Bonsall, who is the head of venture design at IDEA. She currently works in the Palo Alto studio, leading a team of seven business designers. She's also an instructor in the recent IDEOS course called Designing a Business, which teaches venture design. So I invited Amy to actually talk about this and what venture design actually is and how it can help us design new ventures, new startups, new companies. So obviously we spoke about what the venture design is and how is it different from the lean startup methodology that we all like to use. We also spoke about uh, what business design is and what Amy is looking for in her uh, business design candidates. So if you're looking for a business design uh, career, this might be an interesting conversation for you. And lastly, we also spoke about creating prototypes and how this basically creates or gives answers and decreases uncertainty when creating new ventures. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So, to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Amy. So, uh, Amy, first of all, I'm interested to hear how did you even get into design, right? Because you are also uh, coming more from the business side, That is a great question. And of course, I think like most people, it was a circuitous path. But I started out my career as an engineer. Uh, So on the one hand, you could argue that I was in design from the beginning. I was was doing product product design as a hardware engineer for for Hewlett-Packard and then a couple of startups. So I was doing integrated circuit design for for printers and flat panel monitors and other kinds of, of devices. Back in the day, and as a as an engineer, I felt like I was missing something. I felt like I wanted to understand more about how our product was being sold and and marketed. And so I worked in a couple of startups, and that really gave me the opportunity to see how um, how the other side of 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 a business comes together, actually, and how it's so much more than a product that that makes a business successful. And I actually got really hooked. I realized that I was interested in designing the business, although I didn't have the words for it at the time. Mm-hmm. I was curious about how strategy and product design and marketing and, frankly, IT and support, all of those things came together to make something successful as a business, not just as a product. And so I went to business school to learn more. I went to business school in Europe primarily because I just really wanted to live in Europe. Um, But I ultimately (laughs) wanted to learn more about how you put a business together. Um, And business school was really helpful for that. Yeah. After that, I moved into a strategy consulting role. So I worked for a boutique strategy firm in London where our clients were you know, uh, FTSE 500 companies, and they were the C-suite of those companies. So CEOs, chief strategy officers, you know, heads of marketing, etc. And what was interesting there is that I learned really how big businesses think about strategy. And we were doing a lot of work to help them think about where they could grow. Like, what are, what are the new big spaces with opportunity for them, which was amazing. Um, but what I was missing there was, uh, we would say, you know, here's a great space in which to grow and we wouldn't get into the detail of how they might do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I left that and I was trying to figure out really what I wanted to do next. And I stumbled upon IDEO for the second time in my career. I had run across it while I lived in California. And then I had a friend in London who, um, who was working there. And I got to know about this concept of business design, which is essentially the, the sort of the 
act of being an, what I call an entrepreneur in residence for, for large companies. And it's the idea of, of thinking about all of the pieces that make a business a business and make it successful and thinking about which ones you need to um, tweak and adjust in order to change and grow a business. So that was my introdu- introduction to IDEO and, and ultimately my reintroduction, if you will, to design. Mm-hmm. Actually, I guess you get a lot of questions and I did and I still do uh, about how do you get a job as a business designer? I'm just wondering if you still remember what the process looked like for you and how did you even get the job? Yeah, for sure. I can I can, I can, can speak about how I got there, cool. but also I do a lot of hiring for that too, yeah. so I can speak to that as well. <laughs> we'll definitely um, talk about it, yeah. <laughs> For me, you know, it was partly serendipity. Um, a good friend's good friend worked at IDEO in London, and he really spent the time to introduce me to what the process was and what, what it meant to be a business designer. Um, and from there, I was introduced to the team. And it was actually a relatively straightforward process. But I think one of the defining memories I have from that experience was they asked me to do a case study, which was unlike any other case study I'd ever done. It was thinking about the future of energy and and how to reinvent um, the the go-to-market strategy and approach for for a local energy company. And it was actually based on some work that they thought for sure that they were going to be doing in that studio. And in the end, we never did the work. Um, But what, what really was intriguing to me was the thought process that I went through and how I was taking the strategy that I had done at uh, this boutique firm and really applying it to visions for the future. Um, And, you know, the ultimate interview uh, concluded in a sort of case study discussion where it was me and a bunch of designers of all different stripes in the same room talking about, you know, how we could help this energy company grow and what kinds of things would be useful to customers. And um, that was really striking for me because it was a real opportunity for for me to see how all of the different um, design lenses, all of the different expertise that came from interaction designers or communication designers or or me in a business design capacity could come together to make a stronger output. Um, And that's, that's a piece of the interview process that I... Um, maintain as core to this day. I think it's really, really important for us to see how, you know, potential business designers can think creatively about, you know, using all of the tools that they know and and have studied in order to create an interesting and compelling future, both for customers and for businesses, Um, but also to see how that collaboration happens. You know, how do they really get energy from, different types of thinkers and and how do their ideas stretch when they see different kinds of thinking. And and so that's a fundamental part of the the interview process right now. Um, What I look for when I'm recruiting business designers is often people who have started their own company or worked in a small company, and it doesn't really matter whether they've succeeded or failed. You know, the, the principles of being scrappy and really trying to you know, iterate to product market fit and figure out how to create something that's compelling to customers and also has business business sense, basically, um, mm-hmm. is really, really valuable, uh, valuable experience. And so that's one of the things that I really um, get excited about when I see in potential candidates. Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that someone who has tried to build his own, her own startup has more chances of getting an interview with you than someone who had an internship at a very famous uh, strategy consultant house or agency. <laughs> oh, now you're making me choose between my two babies. But um, <laughs> yes. No, because uh, you know, a lot of people are asking like, oh, is it better for me now strategically to first go into uh, work for McKinsey for a year and then go to IDEO or is this going to close my doors? Uh, you know, this yeah. whole trying to be in the best uh, position to land the, the dream job discussion? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. You know, at the end of the day, we are, for the most part, IDEO has, has a, a variety of products and services, but a large part of our business still is consulting. Um, and so, you know, the, the strongest CVs or resumes often are a combination of those two things. So if you had started your own company and worked at McKinsey, you would be at the top of my list because you've really um, mm-hmm. seen what it what it 
you felt what it is to be scrappy and prototypey and and really have to you know work for the next bit of revenue. Um, but you've also experienced how to manage and work with um, with large corporations to understand the sort of the intricacies of how communication happens and, and how that can be easier or harder um, depending on the, the the size or shape of the company. And so those two things together are really super powerful indicators mm-hmm. that you'll be successful as a business designer. Um, if I had to pick just one, I would always pick that entrepreneurial background because I feel that uh, you can more easily in this context learn the sort of the ins and outs of, of how to be a good consultant. Um, and often, you know, there's a there's a proxy for consulting that comes with building your own business, which is um, shopping around for investing um, for investor funds. So if you've had to have a lot of conversations where you're really selling your idea or pitching it, um, understanding what you know investors are looking for and what they're valuing, those are very interesting proxies for um, for doing the same thing within within a client relationship. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, are you also looking for business design portfolios? Because I remember <laughs> when I applied for the internship, that was one thing that uh, Trent actually, so my my boss, uh, asked me for, uh, and I was, oh, what what the what is portfolio for a business design? So I just came up with something on the spot. Uh, <laughs> is this something you're looking for? <laughs> oh, I love Trent. That's awesome. Um, that is such a great provocation. I've I've never asked for a portfolio for from a business designer, but I but I really love the idea. And, and <laughs> so you oh, may have just you know yeah, encouraged oh a whole bunch more work for <laughs> for potential applicants. But hey, no, um, you know the concept of a design portfolio is is really well known, obviously within design. And you know what that is is designers showing up and really showcasing their work. Um, mm-hmm. That looks different for business designers. Their work shows up in different ways. But but I really love the idea of thinking about it as a portfolio. Ultimately, it is. You know, it is. You know, successful products and market would be an example of of something that would go into a portfolio. Frankly, a failed product. Would yeah. also be a really interesting part of a portfolio, and I'm curious, like what what were the kinds of things that that were in your portfolio or that you were looking for over there? Oh man, um, I think I took two or three um, projects, entrepreneurial projects I've done, and just tried to reverse engineer to make them look as if I've done them with design thinking. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it was an uh, effort, so I think he appreciated yeah. that. But uh, in reality, I didn't really use all the experimentation and yeah. prototyping that we're going to talk about today. But yeah, I basically just tried to show that I'm willing to think and use the different way of uh, thinking. But I think we talked a lot about the mindset. Uh, uh, another question I wanted to ask you is... Um, so one mindset obviously is very important, but then are there any skills you're looking for in business designers? Great question. So what we, what we look for here, you know, I think there's no one profile of a successful business designer, but we do look for, you know, depths of excellence in certain things, you know, um, those who've read about IDEO might be familiar with the concept of a T-shaped designer. This is the idea that you have a super, deep skill set in one area and you're able to stretch across a variety of areas. So that's the, the stem and the, and the head of the T. We look for the same thing in business design. So we want people to be well-versed in a variety of business techniques, for instance, financial modeling or strategy or marketing or, you know, brand strategy. All of those things are really interesting elements of, of, of business design. Um, but also we love people who have a real depth of expertise in in one or more of those. For instance, you know, one of the guys on my team here is an absolute financial modeling whiz, um, way, way, way more sophisticated than I am. And his models will just make you um, make you smile with delight. I, I, I believe that even if you're not a business designer and, you know, someone else is, uh, you know, has actually. Um, worked in in product launch in a startup, so her experience is really in 
um, that sort of early stage of, of refining a product and getting it to market. Um, someone else has, you know, deep expertise in digital product launch. Um, so we're looking for different sets of expertise um, that can really, you know, add to the success of building a business. And as a team, we work together. I think one of the nice things, I started out my career with IDEO in, in London and Singapore, which were much smaller offices. But here in Palo Alto, we have, you know, 120 people and we have a, a team of seven business designers. And the nice thing here is we all really have different sets of expertise. So when there's uh, an amazing financial model challenge and and my colleague Thej is not part of that, we can still pull him in and get his expertise and he can really help mm-hmm. elevate the rest of us. So we're looking for different sets of skills that complement each other. Mm, makes sense. So before I move to uh, venture design, which I'm highly interested in, uh, just the last question on this topic. So the business design is... Um, I know when I joined, I was kind of craving the resources and, you know, anything that I could read about business design that that would get me more, you know, ready for uh, to get running on the project. Is there anything or any resources that you give to your fresh business designers or even just maybe recommend to anyone who wants to become one? Great question. I actually kind of divide that into two categories. One is like for fresh business designers, I really want them to be immersed in design. And one of the first things that I ask them to do is understand design, almost setting aside business design. In fact, one of the first pieces of advice I give my new team members is don't think about business value, just think about um, about client value, figure out how you can deliver value generally on this project. And, and so the first things that I ask them to read, if they haven't already, are, are books about design. You know, IDEO has a few uh, famous and, and really, really helpful ones like Change by Design and um, Creative Confidence. Um, and, you know, other, there are other amazing resources out there for, for design, for aspiring designers to learn about design. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, for business design, a lot of the things that I ask people to read or to be familiar with um, come from the startup world. So Eric Reese, you know, his book, uh, Lean Startup, is a great one, mm-hmm. but also his more recent one, The Startup Way, is a really nice book that speaks about, you know, how to weave entrepreneurialism into uh, into companies big and small. And that's really what we're doing as business designers here. Um, Mm -hmm. I got a lot of inspiration when I first started venture design, which we're about to speak about next, um, reading Steve Blank's book, The Startup uh, Startup Owner's Manual. Mm -hmm. And there are a variety of different resources out there um, that from, you know, companies such as Y Combinator and and very famous uh, Silicon Valley names here. You know, another source of inspiration that I constantly um, draw from is is Y Combinator and Paul Graham's blog. Uh, yeah, there's a lot says, of yeah. articles there, yeah, that I forward to clients to this day because they have so much resonance and, and value to what we're doing. What's maybe one article you share with your clients the most from uh, Paul's blog? <laughs> that That is a great question. I swear we did not tee this up, but I have the perfect answer, which is, okay. <laughs> um, which is uh, there's one called from Paul Graham called Do Things That Don't Scale. And I recommend this to everyone in the world to read um, because it basically talks about how businesses, as they're getting started, should be doing things that, you know, frankly seem counterintuitive. Um, They should be doing things that are not in any way, shape or form scalable. One tactical, uh, really tangible example is he speaks about Airbnb in the early days and Airbnb you know, was not always the company that we know it as. They were really struggling at one point to get enough uh, consumers actually using their service. They had people willing to rent out their rooms and their homes, but they weren't getting enough demand um, from from travelers. And they 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 took a punt one day. They decided to hop on a plane, go to New York City, um, go to five or six different hosts' homes, and take really high quality professional photos photographs of those homes. As soon as they did that, they they uploaded those photographs and the uptake was something like three times as great for those homes with photographs as the homes without. And, you know, when they went into that, they, you know, they didn't know how to figure out how to scale 
taking individual professional photographs for every home. And in the end, they haven't done that. Um, but they did learn something really critical, which is that the so much of the trust factor for travelers comes from, you know, feeling, you know, visualizing themselves in these places. And if, you know, if they had questionable photographs, it really was a, a deal breaker. Um, and so I really love that as an example of something that they went into not knowing how to make that a scalable part of their product, but ultimately knowing that they were going to figure out what were things that were really amplifying of trust. And so this is something I say to my clients and teams a lot. You know, I want us to be looking for ways to be solving customer need, regardless of whether we think we can scale it or not. Because if we figured out what their need is and how to solve it, we'll find a way to scale it. Mm -hmm. But if we go in with a scale first mentality, we might get something that's, you know, 50% right or even 70% right, but it's not enough to actually, you know, tick people over and make them um, real advocates of our product. I think this is a great example that actually starts talking about the venture design as well. And it just talks about the way people usually think about building businesses. And it's just that, right? So how do I build and scale the business as quickly as possible and this is very much the business way of thinking about things but if you really apply the design thinking to the venture building process then you start instead of thinking about first building the business you start thinking how do i first solve the problems and then i'll figure out the way to scale later right exactly so maybe let's talk about the what is first of all what is venture design at all yeah, that is a great question. And and I have to say, you know, our our vernacular for speaking about it creates just a little bit of confusion because business design is uh, an actual discipline. This is um, yeah. this is a craft like interaction design or communications design, graphics design. Venture design, even though it ends in that word design, is really a practice and an offer. Um, so it is a multidisciplinary um, uh offer essentially or practice that really is around you know designing and launching a new new business or a new venture um, often we're doing this you know in, in an ideal context with large corporations that want to essentially disrupt them disrupt themselves and we're helping them think about what's the consumer need what might be a value proposition to solve it and how do we actually craft and create and launch and market a business that solves this um, but it applies equally well to startups. And we've seen a lot of startups um, benefit from these techniques and, and, and have worked with a lot of startups as well. So maybe let's go through the process, right? So how do I start the venture design process? The venture design process starts very much like the design, the, the design thinking process in that it, it starts with consumer need. So whether we're working with a startup or a large corporation, we are looking at an area where there might be great consumer need and trying to figure out what's not working there and how we might solve that. So to take a really tactical example, you know, um, for those who might have seen the IDOU uh, course we created, I spoke a bit about doing some work with the Yellow Pages of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an example I really didn't go into there, which is um, a second venture that we created for them. And it's all in the trades space. So for anyone who's ever worked with a, an electrician or a carpenter or a plumber, had them over to their home for either repair or renovation, um, they know worldwide, um, unfortunately, this is a challenging and fraught process. And it's not by design on either side. Neither party wants to make it difficult. Um, but the, at the end of the day, one of the big challenges is, is a real communication gap. Um, tradespeople and consumers are simply speaking different languages. And so, you know, starting a new venture really starts with understanding what's the problem space? What's not working for people? Mm -hmm. That's probably um, the creating value part of the whole process, right? Exactly. It really is about creating value. You have to know where value is broken in order to figure out, you know, how to create value. And, you know, you know, in the course, we talk about three different steps for mm -hmm. um, building a new business or launching a new venture. One is creating value, as you say. One is um, 
delivering value, uh, which is actually, you know, figuring out what it is that that you can design and put out into the world that actually addresses that problem. And, what, and one is capturing value, figuring out how you make money off of this to ensure that you have a viable and sustainable business that you can, you know, you can carry on with mm-hmm. serving. Mm-hmm. And so the first step, as you said, exactly right, is is really that creating value, understanding what the problem is so that you can start to solve it. Can you again um, speak a little bit about the difference between creating the value and delivering the value? Yeah, for sure. So, so if I carry on that example, if if creating value is really, you know, understanding what that problem space is and and what might solve it, um, mm-hmm. delivering value is really, you know, uh, iterating on a solution that that helps to address and, and solve that problem. So, for instance, uh, with with the Yellow Pages of Australia, you know, the problem we identified was tradespeople and, con- and consumers aren't speaking uh, the same language. And so, and, and furthermore, um, you know, the Yellow Pages as the sort of shepherd of this, of this relationship actually wasn't being additive to the relationship in their current configuration. So they were providing information to consumers on how to reach and, and get a hold of an electrician or a carpenter or, or a plumber, et cetera. But they didn't actually understand what that relationship entailed and how they might help further. And so together with them, we created a new service that allowed tradespeople and consumers to actually communicate and interact on a much more human level for both of them. So we took cues from what was, you know, the ways people were communicating naturally. You know, if you have a renovation going on in your home, chances are you're taking a dozen pictures per day and sending them to your family and friends. Um, you might be taking pictures and, and text messaging them over to your contractor to say what's working or what's not working for you. And so we thought rather than ask people to change behavior, we really just leveraged existing behavior. And so we created a communication platform that allowed people to communicate, you know, traits people and, and consumers to communicate pictorially and visually in order to really advance a mutual understanding of, of, of the problem and what was being addressed. Um, and underlying that actually was, was the whole sort of business side of what the tradesperson needed to get done using pictures. He could create a very, very rich quote at the beginning, um, you know, all the way through to, you know, pictorially saying, this is what I've done and this is why I'm invoicing you, um, you know, throughout the, the entirety of the, of the, pro- of the project. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, delivering value in this case was really about understanding and designing a service that could, could, could address the needs that were unmet. Mm-hmm. So basically creating the value then kind of sounds like finding the problem space and delivering value sounds like creating the product. Is that right? I, in, in, in the most basic terms, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, creating value is really understanding what is the problem space, but also what are the potential ways that we could solve it. And delivering value is really iterating mm-hmm. on finding that, that solution for people. I think one of the, one of the big um, uh, catches or challenges in creating and launching a new business or a new venture is that the idea you come up with originally is rarely actually the thing that you successfully bring to market. Yeah. And one of the real benefits of venture design is, is creating a prototyping and iterative approach to figuring out what that ultimate service um, or product or offering mm-hmm. is. Um, and so that's the real process of delivering value. Mm-hmm. But what would you say to someone who uh, would rather use Lean Startup because the venture design sounds similar and it's also iterative. There's also MVP and can, I can launch something. I can learn from it and build it again. How are these two approaches different? It's a great question and one we hear a lot. And actually, I think they're complementary approaches. Um, but I believe venture design starts a bit earlier and really goes deeper into the customer needs. So one of the things that we really emphasize in that creating value um, step, the very first step, is truly understanding customer need before we actually create anything. 
Um, and so that's, that's kind of distinction number one. Distinction number two is we're often, you know, Lean Startup did a really, really lovely job of building the case for MVP, minimal viable products. Often in my experience, I, I find that people create, spend a few months developing a minimum viable product um, and launching that. So it might be, you know, creating the first app or code base for a new product. You know, we really um, are proponents of, uh, of starting even earlier and creating what I call a behavioral prototype which is something that I believe can be built in a day, built and launched in a day or a week at maximum. And the idea of a behavioral prototype is that we're really testing um, how people might behave if we actually created this thing and launched it into the real world. Um, you know, often we, you know, we think about prototypes generally as, as a group of designers. And I think one of the, one of the real distinctions I've been trying to make is between that kind of prototype behavioral and attitudinal. An attitudinal prototype is something that you can show someone and you have to say, imagine if, imagine if we built this, imagine if you could use this, how would your life change? A behavioral prototype is just building a piece of it and showing, showing someone how their life would actually change and seeing their behavior as a response. That's super interesting. So and it makes sense now when I hear it, but I've never thought about having behavioral prototypes and attitudinal. When would you say is more makes more sense to use the attitudinal and when the behavioral? So they complement each other. So they're certainly they both certainly have a lot of value to the design process. We often use attitudinal product pro, uh, excuse me prototypes super early on in that sort of creating value stage when we're just trying to get a sense of of what people's needs might be. We create um, what we often call sacrificial uh, concepts or prototypes. And these are things that really just uh, pique a conversation uh, with people, help us to understand their attitudes, their behaviors, etc. cetera. Um, also, attitudinal prototypes can be incredibly helpful uh, for creating a vision of what the future could look like. So often we use them when we're working with really large companies who need to um, uh, get a lot of people excited about what the future might be before we actually build it. Um, an attitudinal pro prototype, that might be a click-through prototype or something that you know visually represents what the, the future might be, can really go a long way to helping people understand it and vision. Behavioral prototypes, I find, are really good in that delivering value stage. And it's really about um, overlaying and, and understanding um, both consumer need and business viability at the same time. So, you know, you know, a tangible example of this is, you know, separate story, but we were working with a, a company in, in Asia that was trying to help women to integrate more um, exercise into their lives, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so we had this idea for helping create a series of different, essentially exercise regimes um, that suited a variety of different people. And when I say exercise, that might mean, you know, playing outside with your kids or going for a walk with your friends or, um, you know, even just walking to the grocery store and back. So exercise, you know, in its broadest form, just getting movement into your life. And the, 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 the behavioral prototype that we created to just see whether there were legs with this was we, you know, did a pop-up in a local cafe and we created, you know, five different um, movement kits that combined a series of products plus, you know, um, exercise method cards, you know, um, cards that might prompt people to do different types of movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we pre-sold them. So we actually didn't have a company. We didn't have a product. Um, we didn't have any more of these kits than the single five that we, you know, five distinct ones that we had in front of us that day. But rather than asking people, you know, what would you do if we sold this? Um, we took pre-orders. Um, and so we were really able to get a sense of, you know, which ones people gravitated to, which ones they were willing to spend money on, most importantly. And that really is that intersection of, 
you know, consumer need and business need. Ultimately, mm-hmm. we're, we're constantly using behavioral prototypes to look for what we call traction signals. Um, are people willing to actually pay for something? Are they likely to recommend it to a friend, et cetera? All of these things are stronger signals to us than, you know, someone saying they're stronger signals, let me say, of business viability than someone saying they might be interested in something. Yeah. But you know what's tough for me in all of that is like, how do you know you really got it right? You know, because you might have, you know, is, is 10 pre-sold uh, method cards enough or should you be looking for 50? Like, <laughs> That's a great you know? question. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, we're at, at early stages, we're looking for directional insight. We're looking for if we get... You know, if we had 50 people come to us that day and 10 of them picked one and, you know, just two or three picked all of the others, that gives us real directional insight Mm -hmm. on where we can develop and spend more time and energy. Um, And one of the one of the key attributes that we always uphold with behavioral prototyping is making sure that we we are looking for relative comparisons um, because we aren't going to get volume early days. We're really just trying to understand, you know, what excites people, you know, uh, but on the flip side, we do use techniques like, you know, pre-launch on online where we might use Google ads or Facebook ads in order to drive a lot more traffic to our site and start to see whether we're getting volume. Um, We tend to be more careful in those contexts because we don't want to be promising a lot of things that we can't deliver on. Um, but the combination of, or we can't immediately, immediately deliver on rather, but the combination of, of having a small sample of people that we've actually been able to mm-hmm. engage with and see, um, see both why things are resonating with them and also what, um, what traction signals we're getting and, you know, a broader scale confirmation mm-hmm. through, something like AdWords can really be confidence inspiring. So when would you say at what point do you move from the directional feedback to more absolute one? You know, to me, it's a really interesting question because I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, what's the difference between directional and absolute? You know, and I think ultimately the reason that that my mind goes there is because ultimately the venture design process is is a constantly iterative one. So, you know, early on, we might be trying a few different things to see which one is rising above. Usually in those cases, um, the, the, so the next iteration uh, takes a combination of things from, from a variety of different um, prototypes that we put in market. And so each time, you know, so in that, you know, in that really tangible example of those pre-order boxes, um, you know, one might have risen to the top, but we might have learned something really impactful from one of the others. And so the so the next iteration is a combination of those two things. And so we're constantly refining our information based on what we're learning from market. And, and also, you know, I think critically, we're not always uh, every behavioral prototype isn't a full end to end experience of of what might be the ultimate product or service that we launch in market. In fact, we're very, very methodological about uh, determining what are the assumptions that are most important to test. And then we create something that's narrow enough just to test those assumptions. And then we piece it all together. Um, We call this a question queue, which is a really great name um, that some of my colleagues in Cambridge came up with. But it's the idea of listing all of the questions we need to answer to gain confidence that, you know, if we were to ultimately build this end-to-end service or product or experience, that people would pay for it. And in fact, just to kind of extend that further, and I'm going to attempt to do this without visuals, which I usually use, (laughs) but, you know, from the first time we come up with a value proposition, all the way through to when we get to actually launching an MVP in market, there's a lot of design in that in that um, in that continuum, and and early on, everything that we're creating is one of these behavioral prototypes, and it's all manually constructed. Um, in other words, you know, we're we're Wizard of Oz's Wizards of Oz behind the scene, 
really pulling a lot of the strings. And we do this not to be fast, although it is fast. We do this primarily because people, at least today, are the most adaptable machines out there. And as soon as we code something, we've made a, um, a selection or direction as to how it's actually codified and what it's going to deliver to consumers. You know, if we have people in the ball in the loop, if we create an entirely manual experience at the beginning, um, we can adjust on the fly. And we humans are really, really great at adjusting to clues. And so what what the process is from early value proposition, proposition idea all the way through to MVP is a series of little steps um, of behavioral prototypes that help us know what it is that we actually need to code up, if you mm-hmm. will, um, and what it is that we need to cement and, and really launch to market. Let me just try to sum up the, if to see if I kind of got it now. So the way I see it is that you first do the research with users and maybe even the experts in the field to kind of figure out what are the maybe feasibility, viability, and desirability um, uncertainties of this business. Because by nature, a new venture or a new startup is very uncertain. So what we're trying to figure out in this case is what are those uncertainties? So once you have them, you can try to then put them into a list of questions or maybe even assumptions. So if this is uncertainty, we think this is true or basically this is the question behind this one. And then once you know what a question is, you can start testing it in kind of a systematical and methodological way with either behavioral prototypes or attitudinal prototypes. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. Well, well captured and very succinctly delivered. Thank you. Um, exactly. So it's just a series. I think prototyping can seem like a black box um, to many people, or it can seem overwhelming, or it can frankly seem like a distraction. Why don't I just build the thing? Yeah. Ultimately, if it's done right, prototyping is a really systematic and methodological, methodological excuse me, I can't <laughs> say that word today, um, <laughs> structured way to... Um, way to create confidence that what we're essentially putting into the market or ultimately putting into the market as an MVP or a pilot is going to be viable and successful. Um, We originally called this process the risk reduction process, which is a very unideal way of, of, of phrasing it. And so we've adjusted it, but ultimately that's what we're doing. We're trying to take risk out of the system. Mm. And, and, what I like about it, actually, just um, I, I recently read the Running Lean book, and there was a great example there that um, basically it said that if your first step, if your first MVP is just building something, then actually what you're testing is just if you can build it. Basically, you're just <laughs> basically you're just dealing with That's the uncertainty of feasibility, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I love that. That's exactly right and, and, and really nicely phrased. And most of the times, especially with non-technologically revolutionary uh, projects, it's not about if I can build it. It's more about are people going to use it and are people going to pay for it, I think. Totally. And and that's the exact point of behavioral prototyping. It comes back to the, mm. um, what's the movie Field of Dreams? If you build it, they will come. Yeah. I think, you know, we know we can build it in in most cases. And I'd say, you know, of all the ventures that I've helped build and launch over the years, um, there have been very, very few things that we questioned whether we could build. Um, But the really big question is, if we build it, will they pay? Um, Will it provide enough delight and value that people will actually pay for it and, and share it with their friends and help us grow our business? Yeah, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um. I want to close this this session just with, is is there any um, example that you really like of venture design or even just business design? Well, you know, I mean, I spoke of a few projects that I've worked on here, but I, you know, one of the, one of the companies that I constantly admire and who I think, even if they don't uh, use the terminology themselves, are prolific venture designers is Amazon. Um, and what I think is really interesting about Amazon is that they are unafraid of, of, of constantly creating and, and spinning out new ventures that may or may not be successful. You know, when they started Amazon Grocery, um, that, they started it about 10 years ago. And it was, you know, such a horrible failure that, that customers were, um, yeah, I remember reading a scathing 
article about it, which I've since tried to find, and I'm pretty sure it's been taken down. Um, but you know, their very first prototype was uh, they just used the regular Amazon service, and you know, had people bundle together, um, you know, a variety of different products into one quote unquote grocery delivery. And and the the scathing review that I read was one woman saying, well you know, my grocery delivery came over three days in about 50 different boxes um, because it was cobbled together that way. But they did it and they learned, I'm sure, a lot about, you know, customer desire that way and what things would work and what didn't. Um, And then, you know, over the years, they iterated to um, what, at least in the U.S., is a quite um, streamlined and, and sophisticated experience right now. So, um, so I love them as an example because they're, you know, they're, you know, I think the the one of the world's biggest uh, companies. I think they hit a trillion dollars in valuation recently, and um, and they're they're just constantly betting the farm and constantly iterating um, on their own model. So so I think you know for a lot of great examples, we can look no further than them. Mm. I want to close with um, another question. Uh, which is uh, sometimes fruitful, sometimes less fruitful. Let's see what's going to happen today. It's basically, what is one <laughs> thing about design, business design, or just design in general, that you've changed your mind about in the last year or two years? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, what have I changed my mind about in the last few years? I think, you know, two years ago, I moved from... Asia after living 10 years in Europe and then and then a few years in Asia I moved back to the US and and I've been immersed in Silicon Valley and I think that one of the really fascinating things for me to observe I think there's a sort of a perception from the rest of the world and and, and you know even as an American you know living overseas I had this perception that um, Silicon Valley sort of has it all figured out. <laughs> and, um, and you know, one, one of the things that I've really seen or that has struck me as I've gotten here is worldwide, companies still find real challenge in making space for a lot of the te- techniques and tactics that we worked on, uh, that we spoke about here today. For instance, that whole concept of behavioral prototyping or designing something pre-MVP um, you know, a lot of, of companies recognize value in it and yet can't find time for it um, because our culture is really one of, um, of rapid launch. You know, whether we're in a publicly traded company or in a company with venture funding, we're under pressure to launch the next thing and have the numbers to show, um, to show that week on week or year on year growth. And so that early prototyping really gets squeezed. And, and I think that it's costly. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, very, um, it's very much more cost effective to have failed with something, you know, that you built in a day or a week than to fail with, to fail with something that um, you put even a few months into or even a few weeks into coding up mm-hmm. and building. And so I think that more than ever, there is an opportunity and a need to help figure out how we can, you know, to me, that is a design challenge. You know, companies desire to do this, but don't feel that they have the time for it. I think that we have some really interesting behavioral prototyping ways to solve that. But but I'm really, um, you know, inspired by that design challenge, trying to help companies who are in that position to figure out how they can sort of have their cake and eat it too. Mm. I think this is also one of the things I realized when I joined IDEO is that people uh, at IDEO enjoy being wrong. And this is one thing, (laughs) you know, like I think this is where what you were just saying is basically exactly that. So if in the beginning I'm willing to be wrong and to really um change my idea because a lot of the times people are not willing yeah. to change the idea and that's why they don't want to even do these kind of prototypes in the beginning because they have a fixed yeah. image of how it should look like yeah and i think that you know so this is i think one thing that i take from having been a um a strategy consultant and an and an mba is that you know frankly in in a lot of business and educational contexts we are really trained to have the answer. Yeah. 
You know, I remember one of the most striking things that a colleague said to me a few months after I'd arrived at IDEO is, Amy, it feels like you always have to have the answer and you don't need to have the answer here anymore. Um, and I think that's, it's, you know, it's, that's, that was eight years ago and it's really resonated with me. Um, IDEO is, you know, and design is really a tool that you use in a place that you come to when you don't know the answer and it's okay not to know the mm -hmm. answer. Um, but, you know, we are often evaluated in the rest of the world on having the answer. And so, you know, maybe that's the ultimate design challenge. How do we help people feel comfortable um, not having mm -hmm. the answers? I think this is a really nice point to wrap up. Just as a last question, maybe um, for listeners who want to learn more about you or even about the, um, the course, the uh, the course you and the other two business designers at IDEO are giving, uh, where can they learn more about this stuff? Thanks for asking. Yeah, so we have launched a course that um, had its first cohort in the spring and will second second cohort will launch in, in November um, called Designing a Business. And it's uh, done by me and two of my colleagues, um, Carrie and Dave from from IDEO. Uh, and it's, you know, if you go to IDEOU.com, you can see and sign up for the, the upcoming course. Um, I also have, a, you know, an article coming out soon that is speaking to a lot of what we spoke about here. And it will actually link to a more detailed Medium post as well that, um, that goes into some breakdowns of how to think about and do behavioral prototyping. So, for, so keep an eye out for that. Um, I'll post it on LinkedIn and, and Twitter as well. Um, I can be reached. Uh, I'm, um, gosh, I haven't even thought about my Twitter handle in a while. <laughs> um, Amy underscore Bonsall at Twitter. So cool. Well, Amy, thanks a lot for taking the time and sharing all this knowledge with us. Um, it was a great learning for me. Uh, so really, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for the invitation. This is, uh, I always enjoy speaking about this. I loved your prompts and challenges. I, and I've taken away some really interesting things here as well, including um, that idea of a design portfolio, a business design <laughs> portfolio. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, maybe not so great news for the listeners, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least now they know what they need exactly. to do. So. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thanks again, Alan, thank for having you. me. Thank you. My pleasure. Cool, that's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, this really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.